what really seems to have happened in the last 20 years is that Republican political leaders have become more ideological and also more simply anti-whatever Democrats or liberals are for. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'd recently interviewed Professor Gelman from Columbia, and he recommended that I talk to Professor David Weeklum, retiring as a sociology professor at the University of Connecticut and author of a book on public opinion and the blog Just the Social Facts, Ma'am. Professor Weeklum and I talked about things like how he got interested in public opinion. We talked about political polarization and changes in the electorate and why sociologists think people pick up their opinions from those around them. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor David Weeklum of the University of Connecticut. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. David, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm David Wheatlam. I was professor of sociology at the University of Connecticut until I retired, which is just about now. And before that, I taught at Cornell University and Indiana University. I was an undergraduate at Harvard and got my PhD at um, the University of Wisconsin. And I've been an academic essentially all, all of my adult life. What attracted you to sociology along the way? As I approached um, graduation, I didn't really have clear ideas about what I wanted to do, except I kind of liked the academic world, so I wanted to go to graduate school. And well, I'm thinking about the possibilities. Sociology seemed to be an area where you could kind of pick what you wanted to do. It, it covered a little bit of everything. How was the graduate school experience for you? Uh, I enjoyed it. Wisconsin was and still is a, a large department, a lot of choices of people to work with, people to talk to, people to be friends with. And of course, you had a good deal of freedom in deciding, deciding what you wanted to study. So it was overall a good experience. What did you write your dissertation on? Uh, my dissertation was about uh, characteristics of collective bargaining agreements, which now seems kind of an antique topic, given that unions have declined so much. But, of course, it was of more importance then. 
And the government actually used to collect data. It would code every major labor union contract and say, does it have this kind of provision, that kind of provision? Um, So I related that to issues in organizational theory. What got you most excited during that graduate school, idea-wise? Like, what did you latch on to most? Things started happening in the 80s, and there were things that people didn't expect. So Reagan getting elected, you know, I think a lot of people, including me, thought he wouldn't be terribly effective, that he would probably get caught up in issues like prayer in schools, wouldn't be able to accomplish most of what he talked about. But in fact, well, he was politically a lot more effective than people expected. And he also did kind of focus on the things he wanted to focus on. One of the, I think the big things was the air traffic controllers strike. There had been a perception among a lot of people in the 70s that, well, unions were powerful. And, you know, if you crossed a major union, there would be a fight and you would, the government would often lose. And, well, in that case, he picked a fight, he won the fight. And so that had an impact. And I think private employers then started seeing that, well, you could take on unions and you could win. If you looked at the data, it didn't seem like the public was really moving to the right in a dramatic way. But it was somehow the political leadership was doing it and was able to do it successfully. So even though people would look at surveys and say, well, it doesn't seem like the American public is really farther to the right than it in, let's say, 1984 than it had been in the late 70s, yet Reagan was reelected by a large margin. When did you really start studying public opinion in earnest? A few years after I got my PhD, so late 80s, early 90s, and I was interested in what sociologists call class voting, which is the tendency of people in different social classes to vote for different parties, and of course, basically blue-collar workers supporting parties of the left, including Democrats, versus white-collar, more supporting parties of the right, you could basically say, well, the higher the social class, the more you're supporting parties of the right. But people were arguing uh, that that relationship was weakening, some even said disappearing. That was often linked to or used to explain the success of Reagan and Thatcher. So anyway, I was interested in looking at this. And of course, that's not public opinion directly. But once you start looking at that, and then you see, well, the trends are whatever they are. And basically, the pattern was that claim about decline of class voting was partly true, or it was kind of true, depending on how you looked at it. That is, Social class still made a difference to how people voted, but it could no longer be simply described as the higher your class, the more more Republican or more to the right you are. So those professionals were moving towards the left, managers or business owners staying more towards the right, Uh, lower white-collar workers to some extent moving towards the left, 
the division was getting more complicated. But anyway, once you find that out, then you sort of say, well, why is this happening? Oh, which leads you into uh, issues of public opinion. That makes sense. What was the first job out of your PhD? I was at Cornell, I was sort of a bit dissatisfied. And partly it's just because, well, it's a small town, long way from other places. You know, in some ways, I think it was would have been a better university to go to mid-career rather than to start one's career. So I was kind of looking for a place more like uh, Wisconsin, where I'd gone to graduate school. And Indiana was more like that. While you were in Indiana, what were you mainly, were you writing books? Were you writing articles? What was your main work? Uh, writing articles. I actually didn't write a book until well, late in my career. My first book was 2016. And I have a book on public opinion, which was published just last year. Most of your career teaching in Connecticut, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about how your career went forward there. Over my career, I would say I, especially at UConn, I shifted more towards studying politics and public opinion. Like I said, my dissertation was on sociology of organizations. And that actually was what I was hired at Connecticut to teach in or do work in. Part of the reason I started thinking more about public opinion at Connecticut, it was, uh, no longer is, uh, the home to the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research, which, despite the name, didn't actually do surveys, but it was an archive or is an archive or essentially a library of surveys uh, and focusing not on academic surveys, but on public opinion surveys by things like the Gallup Poll going back as far as the 1930s. And when I first came there, that sort of thing, you couldn't access it online. You actually had to order magnetic tapes and they were mounted in the computer center. So it was a lot of work. So actually being there and being able to say, look at old code books, that was something that, well, you, you couldn't do unless you were on the spot. And just kind of out of curiosity, I wanted to look at that. I became more interested in making use of this stuff because most academic research on public opinion uses standard academic data sets uh, like the General Social Survey or the American National Election Surveys, and those have a lot of advantages. But you know, at the same time, there are some limitations. So for example, they're designed to go on a regular schedule and they're designed well in advance. So they can't really respond to specific events. And if you want to see, well, how did people react to some historical event or some historical figure? And if there's going to be anything, it's going to be in the uh, commercial surveys. And another thing is that the Commercial surveys simply go back in time farther. Did you feel like you had chosen the right career? That this was like really interesting, that you were, you know, where you ought to be? Um, yeah, because um, I enjoyed doing it. I, I liked uh, thinking about this sort of thing. I liked the freedom of academic life. I always felt like I picked the best career for me. And in fact, 
if I'd had to have a second choice and say, well, what, what would I have done if I hadn't been an academic? I would have had a tough time. What I tell people is I would have liked to be a used book dealer because it is some of the same characteristics and I like books. You mentioned a book in 2016 and a book in 2020. Yeah. Tell me about the first one. Well, first one was called uh, Hypothesis Testing and Model Selection in the Social Sciences. So it was about uh, quantitative techniques. It's kind of been a parallel interest in my career. What does that mean? I would say more of an overview. If you're studying something and you see, well, here's a difference between two groups, have you really found a difference or could it just be a matter of chance? And people talk about statistical significance. But then there's the issue of, well, what does that mean? How much evidence, if you say you have a statistically significant difference between two groups, how much evidence is that that there really is a difference? And there's actually a long-running debate among statisticians, social scientists, etc., about, well, how much do you need in order to have evidence? And this is assuming, you know, that you don't have any other complications that, you know, you're not getting into issue of, of well, is it, was this was this a representative sample or not? But you're saying even under ideal conditions, how much difference do you need in, in order to be able to say, I've got really strong evidence of this? I was trying to um, review the debate and presented in a way that was at least somewhat accessible to probably not introductory students, but at least to say people who did research in social science and wanted to understand what they were doing better, but weren't sort of necessarily experts. Why did you write the book on public opinion and what do you say in that? Uh, well, a book on public opinion, partly because I'd been teaching a class in public opinion and or its official title was Public Opinion and Mass Communication. So I had themes that I covered in the class, and I didn't think were really adequately covered in existing literature. And that's partly because in the early stages of research on public opinion, a lot of it was by sociologists. And, well, so it was kind of central to sociology. But as time went on and political scientists became more interested in it, and also communication scholars, sociologists, for various reasons, sort of dropped out of it. It always seemed to me that there were some interesting ideas in the early research that had kind of been abandoned or neglected since that time, uh, so that I kind of thought there was an opening for a book where someone would make the case that, well, sociology is something to contribute to public opinion research, and also that sociologists should be interested in this. Is there a gulf between the way political scientists view public opinion and the way sociologists do? I wouldn't say it's a gulf. You know, there's certainly a lot of overlap, but I think sociologists tend to think of public opinion more as kind of appearing out of uh, ordinary social interactions. That is, to a large extent, what people think about politics or with their choice of a party 
is kind of like, you know, why you become a fan of one sports team rather than another. And that's basically, well, if you're surrounded by, let's say, Red Sox fans, you'll probably become a Red Sox fan. Of course, there's individual variation and there's idiosyncratic deviations, but to a large extent, people just sort of pick up what's around them. And of course, with being a sports fan, well, just means you're a sports fan, but with politics, well, once you've become a fan of a party, uh, then people tend to, to some extent, adopt the ideas of that party. Um, so rather than thinking of it as, well, people have political opinions, and then they kind of go out and look for a party that best matches them, it kind of reverses the way of looking at it and sort of says that, well, political affiliations come not from political sources, but from everyday social contacts. Around 2010, I think, you started a blog, Just the Social Facts. Why? Well, it was kind of notes to myself. Sometimes I would uh, find an example that I thought this was a good example for class. So partly it was notes for that. Partly it was sort of things that looked interesting and I might want to follow up with a full-fledged paper in the future. You know, so there are lots of ideas that seem like they might be promising. You can't pursue them all, and in fact, realistically. But I would think, well, if I put it up there, I'll at least remind myself. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, I'd see something in the newspaper and think either that's wrong, I, I know that there's information that counts against this, or I'd think that's an interesting idea, wonder if we can get some information. And by that time, a lot of survey data and other social science data was available online. So in contrast to the way it used to be, you could just download a data set do a quick analysis, maybe come up with something that was um, at least more informed than what someone had been saying. So essentially, I started, well, just writing down whatever, uh, whatever caught my attention because time went on. And of course, the politics of the last decade have been eventful. And I started focusing more on political developments. For an academic, having that kind of publication, like uh, no editor, people can read it all over the world, react to it in a different way than probably people would have pre-internet, right? It's a, it's a different way of, of showing ideas and, and getting feedback. Who did you find was reading it and to what extent did they engage with you? I didn't sort of make a lot of effort to publicize it. And I, I don't get a huge number of comments on it. I don't get the sense that most of them are academics. So I think I am at least reaching a, a number of people who you know, are, not, are not the kind of people who would read a journal article. And Andrew Gelman, who recommended me to you, he's taken an interest in it. And he's also got a widely read blog and his community of readers is very, very engaged although he kind of focuses on the, uh, the statistical methods, only his um, politics is a secondary thing. It is good that I sometimes get the sense that there are people who are uh, reading what I'm writing, 
a lot of it is still just kind of writing to clarify my own thoughts. What do you think you know about public opinion that isn't generally known? One thing is um, just kind of the basic facts about the way that the alignments have changed. So I mentioned the shift in the relation between occupation and uh, voting. And actually, there's things get kind of complicated there because sociologists, when they say social class, they're usually thinking about types of jobs. So like professionals, managers. In the early days of surveys, the surveys would ask about sort of job you did and then classify it. But since about the 70s, commercial surveys have stopped asking about occupation mostly, and they've asked about education and income. So education and income are kind of what are discussed when people talk about, say, the white working class. It's not actually blue-collar workers. It usually is, in effect, defined as people without a college degree. I think everybody knows that, say, in the 2016 and 2020 elections, Donald Trump did relatively well among less educated voters or less educated white voters and or relatively poorly among well-educated white voters. That's the continuation of a process that's been going on for a long time. As long as surveys have been around, there's been sort of a drift of college graduates in relative terms towards the Democrats. And uh, Trump did kind of, well, maybe accelerate it. And that is, he did better among people who hadn't gone to college than you would expect, just extending the trend. The point is that this wasn't something that just suddenly happened. It wasn't just Donald Trump. And in fact, it's not even just the U.S. It seems to have happened in a wide range of countries, maybe even all countries for which uh, data are available. Do you think that's because of a change in what elites are doing, what politicians are doing, or is that a change in the electorate or both? Uh, well, probably the safe answer would be both, because usually what elites are doing has an impact on the electorate. And that's partly because of what I said before, that once you've picked your party, if the people who you like and trust are saying one thing and the people who you don't trust are saying a different thing, well, you're probably going to go in the direction of the, the people you trust. So elites can either pull people apart or pull them together. On the other hand, although it might seem like, well, there should be big swings in response to uh the particular issues in a particular election. So if, let's say, politicians are emphasizing abortion, there should be a bigger split on in terms of abortion attitudes. That doesn't really fit the kind of long-term nature of the change. That is, you know, regardless of who exactly is running, there seems to be this sort of gradual shift in the way that more and less educated people are voting. So it seems to be uh, probably both. Does it seem to you like Trump deliberately went after exacerbating that difference, really aiming politically at the white 
non-college educated voter? It's hard to say there because, of course, I don't have any insight into his thinking. You know, my but he made, but I mean, he made these strategic moves on trade and on immigration. It's hard to know to what degree they came from strategic moves versus conviction on on those issues. But you watched him, you watched the reaction, and he was very much a guy. It seems like who put something out there and wanted to see how people responded to it. What's your sense of how he played the game in that area? Well, I think there he was proposing ideas which had a lot of support among the public and actually particularly among less educated members of the public because on something like free trade, more educated people are more favorable to free trade or low tariffs than less educated people, less likely to say that protecting American jobs should be a priority. So he was putting out ideas that didn't really have much support in uh, among political elites at the time. Uh, and immigration is another thing where consistently, if you look at surveys, more people say there should be fewer immigrants than say there should be more immigrants. Public opinion has actually become more liberal on that issue since the 90s. So in a way, there was probably more potential for that as an issue in uh, the 90s than there was when Trump came along. It was something that had a lot of support among the public and hadn't really been exploited by political elites. And in fact, there were some survey questions in the early 2000s about whether we should build a wall across the border with Mexico. At that time, no politician really, except for maybe a few fringe figures, was talking about it. And in fact, I remember I once, I believe it was 2008, I had an exam question in a course on public opinion I was teaching saying, surveys show that there's a lot of support for this position in the public, the build a wall thing, but no politicians have really talked about it. Nobody has brought that forward. Why might that be? I couldn't use that question anymore. But anyway, so Trump was appealing to a kind of sentiment in the public that nobody else had appealed to. I think once he did that, you know, whether or not he had much strategy behind it, the fact that people were responding to it meant that, well, he uh, kept with it. People like you are not campaign consultants or prognosticators, but is, is it your sense that that trend with divergence between college-educated and uncollege-educated continues into the future? Just kind of extrapolating, you would have to think it's pretty likely because it has been growing for a long time, although it can't go that way forever. Still, it would seem like in the short term, it would be more likely. You mentioned earlier that sociologists think that who you're around is a, has great bearing on your political attitudes. And I mean, would it be the case that if there's like a growth in conservatism, say, in an area, and you, as you get to some kind of percentage of people that feel that way, there's sort of a momentum there to have everybody move one direction, have urban areas move one way and have rural areas 
move another way, just as they kind of get critical mass and are less contested. Yeah, I think there is a tendency sort of for the exaggeration of those differences. It's just if people get the sense of, well, everybody is a Republican or everybody is a Democrat. Well, unless there's something unusual about you and you're just contrarian, you're probably going to um, adopt that too. And the other thing, and this this was an early finding of research on public opinion, is that most people don't really like disagreement or debate. And so political discussion tends to be with people who you know are sympathetic or who you feel like they might be sympathetic. And if you start having a conversation with um, a neighbor or someone you know but aren't close friends with, and it seems like, well, you might have strong disagreements, rather than pursuing those disagreements, you're probably going to change the subject. So basically, people tend to talk more to people who they agree with, and that exaggerates it even more. That is, even if a person is in an area that's like, say, 60% democratic, the people who they talk to, at least you know, talk to about politics, are likely to be even more democratic, let's say 90%. So I think people often just get the sense that, well, this is what everybody or pretty much everybody thinks. I know you've written a lot about political polarization, and that's what we're talking about right now. How do you understand this increased polarization that's been getting greater and greater over the last several decades? How do you understand that in this context? The interesting thing is that the increase in polarization in the U.S. really seems to be distinctive to the U.S. It's not something that's happened in most other countries. And in fact, there's some evidence that in most countries, the polarization between at least the major parties, um, like conservatives and labor in Great Britain, uh, has been declining, not increasing. So I don't think it's kind of the broad social changes. There's where the role of elites is important. What really seems to have happened in the last 20 years is that Republican political leaders have become more ideological and also more simply anti-whatever Democrats or liberals are for. And an example of that would be the Obamacare in contrast to something like Medicare, which conservative Republicans opposed when it was first introduced, well, within a few years, you know, they accepted it. Even then they started to extend it or say we're defending it. But Obamacare, it was, well, I guess they've sort of given up the struggle now, but it took three Supreme Court cases and what, 50 or so votes to repeal it in Congress. And a lot of resistance in the states. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there were things like states refusing to participate, which again, there's nothing parallel about that with, um, well, with Medicare. I think it's driven mostly by political elites. And I don't think it's something that's well understood. Part of it is might have to do with the strength of the two party system in America, because in other places, even where there's two dominant parties, there's 
always some choice. That is, you can get elected to parliament if you're not conservative or labor, and they're underrepresented, but they're not totally shut out. But in the U.S., it's Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, if you don't like either candidate for president, as a lot of people didn't in 2016, still, if you vote for a third party candidate, they're not going to win any state. They're not going to have any impact. So basically, in the U.S., it really is either or. And I think under those circumstances, the negative campaigning and a just straight out opposition becomes more effective because if you can convince people that the Democrats are a danger to the country, well, those people are going to almost have to vote Republican. But in countries where there's more than two choices, if you convince people that your leading opponent is dangerous, they might vote for you, but they might vote for another party. And in fact, since people tend not to like negative campaigning, uh, the party that attacks another party uh, may not be the one that benefits from their voters. They might say, well, I'll turn to somebody in the middle. If, if I had to put a finger on a cause of the increased polarization without having studied it, really, I would think it would be the sort of rise of right-wing media and just how much conservative people or people who listen to Fox and those sort of things are being intentionally driven to the right in a very vigorous way. Yeah, I think that's part of the explanation. But then then there's kind of the issue of, well, why is there an audience for that? That is, given that the number of media choices has expanded a lot, it seems like there's always been subset of the population that were more attracted to that kind of set of ideas. You know, I don't know that that's any change. I think you're right that there's always sort of a potential for that, but partly as a result of changes in the media, as you mentioned, and partly also as a result of changes among political elites who, rather than trying to either marginalize the extremes or else to moderate them and basically try to keep that alive. So actually, one thing I've looked at, not in an academic publication, but in a few blog posts, is uh, public opinion about Joe McCarthy. And what brought McCarthy down, the story about it was, what was it, Robert Welch, um, the have you no sense of decency, and then his popularity plunged. But actually, that wasn't the case. That didn't have any discernible effect. The, what seems to have been the case is that basically Republican leaders in Congress got fed up with him, appointed a bipartisan commission to look at what he was doing. The commission unanimously recommended that he be censured. A uh, vote of censure was passed by the Senate with, I think, about half of the Republicans voting for it. So anyway, the political leadership officially censured him. And that was kind of the end. And one reason it was the end was, I think, well, there wasn't Fox News. That is, now if you're censured, or even if the leadership disapproves of you, 
Uh, you can go on Fox News or One American News. One of the new Republican representatives said, if they kick me off the committees, I'll just have more time to go on the media. The Georgia. Oh, yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think. Yeah. So anyway, that was part of it, that there wasn't the kind of alternative way to build support. But the other factor is, of course, the change in the party leadership. That is, it's kind of hard to imagine them doing something they like what they did with McCarthy today. And of course, even agreeing on a commission to investigate January 6th, well, looks like that's not going to happen. So basically, I think the political elites have been, to some extent, leading the development. But given that that's happening, there's also more ways for somebody to have an independent base, reach the public, uh, without going through the political elites. Is Trump different than politicians that have come before him in a, a way that's discernible in public opinion data? Well, one difference would simply be he's got more negatives. Does he have more negatives than Nixon did when he was? Yeah. 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 It's interesting that the, um, the Gallup poll going back to the 50s has asked people to rate different political figures on a scale of, I think, plus five to minus five. Trump has uh, set a record for most minus fives, but he wasn't totally unique there. Basically, there was sort of a rise in uh, extremely low ratings even before Trump. So uh, well, Hillary Clinton, of course, was second in extremely low ratings, but even Obama, although he was popular overall, he got more minus fives than I think any Democratic candidate before, even George McGovern. So the sense of kind of hardcore opposition to the other side has been growing. And although people talked about the enthusiasm of Trump's supporters, in terms of the number of plus five scores he got, he wasn't really unusual. And of course, there's sort of a degree of enthusiasm. So you could talk about, well, going to a rally is more than giving him a plus five on a scale of minus five to plus five. So in terms of like, you know, super enthusiastic, dedicated supporters, he might rank high. But if you look at kind of overall, you know, how much do you like him? It seems like what's unusual is the negatives, not the positives. Another thing, which again is not unique to Trump, but stronger than ever before, was if you look at his approval ratings through his whole term in office, they barely changed. That is, you know, despite everything that was happening, his approval ratings stayed pretty much in the low 40s. And that is very different. So anyway, it used to be there were lots of ups and downs. Well, I mean, you've spent a career as a student of our society. How much do you worry about where we are in this moment? Well, you know, in some ways, I disagree with the people who think that, well, there's some deep social rot, you know, and there are problems like growing economic inequality. But if you look at something like uh, racial attitudes, and not just polls, but even just based on my memories, 
the degree of racial animosity has really declined. If you look at how people assess their lives, um, you know, again, there's no sign that people are unhappy. There is quite a decline in evaluation of institutions. Yeah. So it's not that people feel like my life is miserable and therefore they're lashing out, which is an argument you get sometimes. But it does seem that the evaluation of institutions has declined. And it seems like the evaluation of institutions that are connected to politics has declined the most. If you ask about Congress itself, well, I think less than 10% of people in the latest surveys have a positive view of Congress. And the media, it's also declined. And that's partly, I think, because the media can't really be separated from politics because politics is a large part of reporting. Even things like public schools, ratings have declined. And again, I think that's because as education has increasingly become, um, you know, something people argue about politically. One exception to that is the military, so that views of the military have become more favorable. No one's attacking the military currently. Yeah, and I think that's partly because no one is sort of criticizing the military too much, but also because the military in the U.S. has made real efforts to not get involved in partisan politics. David, is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have? Yeah, I'd actually just want to kind of pursue the last question a little bit about whether it's kind of a general problem in society, which is then people are expressing it by politics, or a problem in politics, which is, I think, um, the answer. I feel like it's a problem in the Republican Party. Well, yeah, I mean, it's more the Republican Party than more... The Democrats have become somewhat more ideological, but not, you know, not a dramatic change. And the Republicans have gone from being, you know, sort of a loose collection of liberals, moderates, conservatives, to being an extremely ideological party. And not just ideological, but also willing to believe fairly far-fetched things, like some of the things that just gets spun up and then public opinion switches on them very quickly. I don't remember that phenomenon in the past quite this way. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what I said before about it used to be that the political leadership would tend to try to moderate them. And it it actually struck me once that the 1960 election, Nixon versus Kennedy you know, of course, that was extremely close. And some people today say that there may have been voter fraud in Chicago or Texas. And so I once looked to see, well, you know, what, what were Republicans saying after that? Were there any polls uh, asking about perceptions of voter fraud? And there were uh, no survey questions on it, which was kind of surprising. But It seemed also like from news reports that basically the Republican Party more or less just accepted the result. And there were some individual people or low-level Republican figures who filed lawsuits or things like that. 
But at least the Republican leadership, including Richard Nixon, just they didn't really say much of anything. And Nixon apparently went on vacation after the election, so he wasn't going to be asked questions. And, you know, in terms of his personality, you would have to guess that he may have been resentful and suspicious and thought that there was fraud. But anyway, I think there was just a sense of respectability that, well, you shouldn't kind of stir up that potential. But now, of course, that's gone. It's gone with this previous president, Mr. Trump. He's booted it out the window. David, it's been an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? Uh, Let me see. No, I don't think so, except that, um, you know, looking back over uh, now 40 or so years about thinking about it, you know, in the the 1970s, it seemed to me as a teenager that American politics was kind of boring. There were no big issues. But of course, looking back, you could say that was kind of the golden age. So what are you going to do with yourself now that you're uh, retired? What's your next move? Well, I'm actually thinking about writing another book, which would be basically about the rise of political polarization, why it happened, because although there have been a lot of discussions of it, I don't think any of them give what I think of as an adequate answer. Whether I can actually kind of you know, discipline myself to do the work in writing a book, which I've found from experience is a hard thing to do. Not sure. Well, I'm going to look forward to you doing it. I, I'll bet you it's, it seems to be percolating pretty hard within you, and it's certainly affecting society to a great degree. Yeah, and now that I've said I'm going to do it, it, it makes it more likely it's going to happen. May make me do it. <laughs> All right. Well, good to talk to you. That was David Weeklum. He is at justthesocialfacts.blogspot.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.